Hi, everyone. This is episode 41 of Getting Everyone Moving by Palms to Pines Parasports. And today we have Professor Dennis Frost. Hi, Dennis. Hi, nice to meet you. Good to meet you. So how did you get involved in Japan and disability and Paralympics and such? Um, so, I, I, and I'll backtrack a little bit uh, from the current project because uh, my interest in Japan actually came out of uh, my college experience. Um, I had not really had much exposure to, exposure to Japan when I first started uh, college, um, in fact, very minimal, uh, and ended up kind of on a whim taking a Japanese class uh, and then taking a Japanese religion class. And before I knew it, I was kind of hooked um, and then spent a year in Japan. Uh, my junior year, I was in Japan for a whole year. Uh, and fell in love with the history, particularly the history um, of, of Japan and said, you know, I was planning to be a lawyer when I left to go out and study abroad. And by the time I came back, I was like, I think I want to spend the rest of my life studying this place. Uh, <laughs> and so I spent a little bit of time after that in Japan, after I graduated uh, a couple years um, and then ended up at graduate school uh, at Columbia, where I did a dissertation on the history of sports stars. Uh, so sports celebrity in Japan, I started back with sumo wrestling, you know, as late as the 1600s uh, and brought it up to the present. You know, I ended the book at, at the time. It was a, it was with Ichiro. It was the present. Um, you know, he was still playing in the United States at that point. Um, and, and so that was, uh, that's kind of where I got started uh, in the disability or in the history side, uh, the Japanese history side. Um, my focus on disability, and I mentioned this briefly in the introduction of the book, um, was uh, a student, I was teaching a class um, and uh, it was a class called Sports in East Asia and I still teach that class on a regular basis. Uh, and one of the students, and this was right after, I was finishing the dissertation at the time um, and so deeply embedded in this earlier project on sports history in Japan, you know, very familiar with sports in Japan. And a student asked me about the, uh, if, if they could do a presentation, they were doing group presentations and the student, one of the groups wanted to do something on the Nagano Paralympics. And I was like, sure. I'm like, why do I not know about this? Uh, and that was kind of the inspiration. Um, that was, you know, so that was back like 2006, two, I think 2006, right? was when that was happened, 2005, 2006. Uh, and, um, you know, and I was still in the process of the other book. So I spent, finished that one up uh, and then was like, maybe I should look into this more. Uh, and I, you know, my first trip to Japan for this project, uh, the book project, the current book project was um, uh, 2011. Uh, right after the the earthquake, I was there in June, you know, and that had been March. Um, and so was there doing research uh, in Japan, gathering information. Um, they hadn't won the bid for the Paralympic for the Olympics and Paralympics yet. So, you know, that was kind of not on the, not on the horizon. Um, so it ended up becoming, you know, way more timely than I anticipated, uh, given the fact that they won the bid, you know, two years later. Uh, and then, you know, there's been all this preparation for for the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics coming up here. So well, that's kind of the intellectual yeah. side of kind of how it came about. Yeah. Well, so talk about the book then. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what are some of your findings? Um, I've spoken to Mark Bookman uh, mm -hmm. a little bit um, about his experience, uh, you know, being a person with disability and living in Japan. Mm -hmm. But yeah, talk a, talk a bit about the book, please. Yeah, so the book is set up to look at, I mean, the goal is to understand the broader history of disability sports in Japan. So sports for people with disabilities. Um, and really that's in many ways a post-World War II phenomenon in Japan, like it is in a lot of other places. There are examples of it before that, um, but really kind of the kind of movement that we associate with the Paralympics today is really a post-war phenomenon. Uh, and so it's to understand how that has happened in Japan, how it's developed in Japan. And in particular, to understand that, I decided to focus on international events that have been held in Japan for people with disabilities. Uh, and so the first of those was the 1964 Paralympics. Um, and one of the things that I you know, point out in the book is that when they first 
this idea was first proposed in Japan, nobody even knew what the Paralympics was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was still at the time, in, even in Europe, it was still new enough that it was kind of not like widely known. Uh, but in Japan, they had never had an athlete participate before in it. Um, before 1960, when it's first proposed. Uh, and so the fact that they even hold the games, you know, four years later, less than four years is what it ends up being, uh, is, is pretty remarkable. And so that's, that's kind of one of the first things I start with is kind of that's the beginning of this movement in Japan. Uh, and then Japan really, uh, one of the things that most surprised me about this is in part because you, you, a lot of the, when Japanese people talk about this and Japanese scholars talk about this, they often kind of talk about it in terms of Japan was behind and Japan has been behind and Japan is always behind in disability sports. Well, the reality is, is that if you look at things, they're ahead of the curve in so many ways. Um, it's particularly in terms of thinking about, you know, in 1964, Japan was only the second place outside of England to host these games of these international events. They've mostly been held in England up to that point and in Rome. And so Japan is like the second place. And then it doesn't happen again in connection with the Olympics until 1988, uh, you know, and then they develop other events uh, like the FISPIT games that are started in Japan in 1975, which are the, essentially like a regional um, version of the Paralympics um, in the Far East South Pacific region. That's what FISPIT stands for, South Far East South Pacific Games. Uh, and, you know, and then there's the Oita Wheelchair Marathon, which I also talk about in the book, which is started in 1981. Um, and some of your listeners may actually be familiar with the event because they may have competed in it. Um, you know, it's the world's largest wheelchair only event. Um, and now one of the few that actually um, uh, is available for athletes with higher levels of, of impairment uh, to compete in at the international level. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's this remarkable world-class event it brings the best athletes to Japan, this, this town, you know, it was kind of remote area in Japan, hard to get to actually. Uh, and, and so that's a fascinating story that I wanted to tell, uh, as well. Um, and it's still going on, you know, it's, it's 40, they're supposed to have their 40th race this past year. Um, and of course, like with COVID they had a race, but it was all local, not international. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's been like, that's the, and I could talk more about that. And I'm happy to answer more questions about the book, but those are some of the kind of things that, you know, really struck me in the process of developing this, uh, and looking in particular at, you know, broader issues of how sports development has continued to be promoted in Japan, uh, and then also accessibility, uh, things like that, or other things that I've been kind of talking about and thinking about in the book. So with, with the Paralympics coming up, hopefully this summer, mm-hmm. hopefully. <laughs> along, along with the Olympics, um, do you, in, in your research, I mean, have you found that, you know, Japanese society is, is open to, um, you know, promoting uh, adaptive athletics, uh, that people are generally aware of, um, you know, athletes with a disability? I think that is something that is, has changed pretty dramatically. Um, in Japan in, I would say really in the last decade uh, or so. Uh, you know, I mentioned I, my first research trip in 2011 for this project, um, I, you know, I was m- working mostly with places that were familiar with this because I was going to, you know, which, it was called JSAT at the time, Japan Sports Association for the Disabled is now the Japan Parasports Association. I think is what they uh, have, have changed their name to. Um, but they, uh, I was working with them. And so of course they were familiar with these events and the things I was talking about. But when I would have conversations with broader people outside of just the, the archival sites I was visiting, I was having to explain what I was talking about. Um, and you know, then in 2017, when I was there, um, myself and my family, we were fortunate enough to be able to spend six months living in Tokyo where I was doing some research, particularly on kind of the upcoming games uh, and attending a lot of events. Um, and, uh, and that was, a very different feeling. Um, you know, I would have convert, I would tell taxi drivers what I was working on and they would say, 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Like they've been doing a lot of work on the Paralympics. Yeah. It's interesting. And went and visited my host family down in Osaka from the first time I was in Japan, went and visited them in Osaka. Um, and I mentioned the project and they were like, Oh, and then, so we had a short discussion with them about it. Um, and so it just, and there was, you know, me just saying what I was working on, then they could bring their pieces. And that's, so that's a really different, um, feeling. And again, I think it's very much tied to, to promotion 2020. They've been really active um, and really embracing the athletes, uh, bringing the athletes into the discussion, into the process, into the promotion process in particular. Uh, and I think that that's had a big impact. It's also, you know, it, it was striking to see just how omnipresent it was in Japan in 2017. Um, you know, I, I remember I was taking a flight somewhere and I was just at the airport and you know, the television was on, like there's lots, always televisions on right around airports. Uh, and they happened to have it tuned into, uh, I think it was the world. Um, what is it? Uh, the pair athletics competition, I think. Yeah, and so the, I think, and I want to say they were in like Dubai that year or someplace, like it was not someplace. It wasn't in Japan. It was an international competition being broadcast in Japan on the airport, the airport television. And it's what they were watching at the airport. Um, so that just that, that kind of, that, that's remarkable. And then, you know, in terms of, uh, broader promotion you have the nippon foundation uh and their japan para sports uh center has has done a remarkable job uh, of promoting stuff and you know and i can't i mean the amount of money alone that they poured into this uh is something that is remarkable and unprecedented in kind of the history the broader history uh compared to what i saw in earlier periods i, I you know i recently saw some um paralympic anime mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah uh, I, and I was amazed by that. I, I, I yes. thought, so it's really, it seems like it really is getting out there to the general public. Yeah. It, and so there's the anime, there's manga that have been developed and they've been, a lot of this is kind of in conjunction, Nippon uh, Foundation, their para sports, uh, para support center. I forget the exact title. It's not on the tip of my tongue right now, but, um, but they provide a lot of kind of support and have kind of coordinated a lot of this, but you also have like NHK, I think is where you maybe saw those anime. Yeah. Um, and they've actually, you know, provided Japanese translations of them, um, or English translations of the Japanese yeah. and are marketing them more broadly. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's a, a huge service, uh, that, that Japan's doing. And that kind of goes back to the point I was making, you know, that there's this idea that Japan has been behind. And then part of what I hope the book does is kind of lets people know that, well, it looks like it's behind because if you didn't tell the stories, um, and the story isn't known, then it looks that way, but you know, it's not. And, and, and there's lots, always you can improve stuff. I don't want to make that sound like that's the case. It's definitely the case everywhere, but, but yeah, I think um, there's a lot of stuff that Japan has done in connection with these games that is going to be beneficial in the long run uh, for, for para sports and, and the Paralympic movement in general. So what about, you know, some of us <laughs> do know about the Paralympic athletes. I mean, the elite athletes, right. What, what about in Japan for, you know, the more recreational, athletes um i recently saw a movie um japanese movie with english subtitles called kick about mm -hmm. um power um soccer um and again those were elite athletes but yeah but what about for those recreational athletes i mean are there do you know are there ngos that are forming in japan to help you know mm -hmm. just just get people moving yeah, there, there is. And I mean, this is something that I wish, um, again, partly because the focus of the book ends up being kind of this big international level. Yeah. Um, the early history of it, of course, is all recreational, rehabilitational, right? Like most sports, para sports everywhere and adapted sports everywhere. That was the focus initially. Um, and the elite level is, the, is something that's come out really since I want to say, you know, the, the 90s in Japan. Um, 
But there is uh, a remarkable number of facilities locally. Um, and uh, there's, you know, there's new studies that are coming out. And I think there's more and more opportunities like this, um, that there's facilities that are promoting these programs. Um, and they're not all tied to the, like the Paralympics and things. So for example, um, you have in Oita, there's the Taiyo no Ie, which is, a, 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 I talk about this in the book, it's a factory that's established in the aftermath of the, the Tokyo 64 games um, that is designed uh, and to be a community for people with disabilities to work uh, and live. And they have gym facilities that are open to the public. Um, and, and so, so there's places like that. You also have, you know, specifically designated sites in Osaka and Tokyo, big cities of course have these, um, but, but even places like Nagano, which had the Paralympics uh, in 98, the winter games, um, you know, they have, facilities that are kind of developed. And, and there's a lot of local organizations that have emerged. Um, and some of these are older uh, and some of them are kind of more recent. Uh, but and so it's one of those things when you start looking for it, it's there. The, the trick that I think is the case, and this is I think true in the United States too, um, based on some of my experiences uh, that you don't, it, you're not gonna know it's there until you look for it because it doesn't get the notice um, of other types of organizations. Uh, and so you really have to look, you know, I was actually just looking at the, for the, the Michigan challenge games or victory games is I think what they're called today. Um, the, it's essentially like track and field events and was looking for that. And I was like trying to find it. It took me a few minutes, um, you know, and I feel like I'm kind of more connected in, than a lot of other people are to those questions. So I think it's the same in Japan. Um, uh, and then they're really actively working to train uh, people now, you know, the, uh, to train uh, specialists and, and people to serve as coaches. Um, and they're one of the goals, and it's something I talked about at the end of the book, what was, was referred to as the 2021 problem at the time, um, which now suggests something very different. Um, but the 2021 problem was this idea of how do you sustain the impact of the games beyond 2020? Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that, that you know, scholars were talking about that I referenced in the book is this idea of training at different levels. Um, so you, of course you wanna train coaches and people to teach, to do adapted sports, but you also need to embed this into education curriculums for, for you know, PE teachers um, into nursing programs so that when they encounter a student who has a disability or a patient who has a disability or some sort of impairment of any sort, that then you can kind of say, oh, well, I, can, I may not be able to help you kind of figure out how to do these sports, but I can point you to where they are. Uh, and so that's something that, you know, I know that they're working on. Um, and I, I suspect that, you know, that's where if we see a, a legacy of the Paralympics, you know, in the, on the smaller scale, that's where it's going to come. Um, it's going to come in those types of efforts that have, you know, have been going on all along, but are maybe gaining some steam because of the, you know, the publicity of the games. So, so your book from Patience mm -hmm. Rose, the Paralympic Movement, Disability and Sports in Post-War Japan, when is it actually going to be released? Oh, it actually has a different title now. So that's an older yeah. title. Okay. Um, so it's actually out now. So it's called More Than Medals, um, A History of the Paralympics uh, and Disability Sports in Post-War Japan. Um, and that's a title. I've used that title um, initially, and I use it for some talks. Um, but it's, it's actually out. It came out uh, January 15th, I think, was the official release date. Uh, and it is um, now... Uh, I think for a while it got hung up and they got shipping got delayed. So like Amazon didn't have it in stock and, but it's now kind of in stock most places uh, and available. Okay. So it is available now. Okay, good. You have to change your CV then. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. I think, I think I need, yeah. The one on my website is, yeah. no, it's, it's not the most recent one. I think that one's, I got it updated at the beginning of the year and the title changed yeah. since then. So. Okay, good. Good. Yeah. Thanks uh, for the reminder. Yeah, yeah. no problem. Um, so when you look at uh, the U.S. kind of mm -hmm. compared to Japan in terms of uh, adaptive sports, I mean, are, are, 
is Japan and U.S. kind of on the same level in terms of promoting, in terms of opportunities and such? That's a great question. And I will say, um, to be fair to the U.S., um, I don't study it in quite the same way. Yeah. Um, my experience is mo much more localized in the U.S. Uh, I, um, uh, and again, I mentioned this in the book, and I've mentioned this in a couple of other uh, interviews I've given that um, my youngest son plays uh, wheelchair tennis uh, and also does sled hockey um, in, on a team here in Grand Rapids, uh, or just which is about 45 minutes north of us. Um, so, so my experience is very kind of local in that sense. So it's hard for me to kind of relate the two. Um, I will say, um, you know, having, like I said, lived in Japan for six months and been studying this project for, you know, a while now, uh, the response to like the Paralympics at the, at the elite level is definitely different. I mean, Japan is, you know, I think in some ways ahead of the US, particularly in terms of media coverage. Um, you know, I think they were seeing something just the other day that they were celebrating the fact that we're going to have primetime coverage of the Paralympics for Tokyo. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, that should have been happening a long time ago. But, um, you know, and that in 1964, there was actually primetime coverage of the Paralympic Games in Tokyo. Yeah. Um, you know, so it wasn't a ton, but, you know, that was 1964 that Japan right. was offering primetime coverage of some yeah. of the events. Um and so there's things like that that I think are, are different. Uh, in terms of access, uh, you know, I think that um, some of the programs, you know, and I, again, I, my experience is kind of much more from kind of what I know from people we interact with and uh, in the US. So I, I know that there are opportunities uh, at like the college level and things like that, that from what I understand are not yet available at the Japanese level. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, you know, I'm thinking of like, you know, the University of Illinois has a, you know, terrific program in adapted sports. Uh, and then you've got like Air University of Arizona and Alabama and, you know, U of M is, is starting to kind of develop yeah. a program. Yeah. Um, these are all partly because like my, my son is looking, starting to think about colleges and stuff like that. So it's like, so they're on my radar. Um, and my sense is that, again, I didn't look at that question, particularly in Japan, but, but I think that that is not quite the same level. Um, and part of that is that the sports systems in general are just structured differently. Um, you know, I think that it's, it's part of a broader kind of difference between the two systems. Um, and it'd be interesting to, you know, maybe in a future project, I can kind of dig more into that kind of, um, you know, yeah. the sub, the next tier down from the, the elite level sports yeah. uh, to look at this. Um, there are, there are, like I said, a surprising number of, of competitions and events and things like that, that happen in Japan. Um, and, and so in that sense, I think they're probably more similar. But again, it, it's probably, you almost have to know about it to be kind of plugged into it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's probably true in both places to a certain extent. So you have a personal connection with um, the world of adaptive sports. Um, what your son, uh, what is his uh, disability? Uh, so he was, he was born with spina bifida. And so he uses, particularly for, for distance um, and kind of at school and things like that, uses a, a wheelchair um, and then um, for sports, uh, he uses wheelchair or like the, the sled for sled yeah. hockey. Yeah, that's terrific that he plays so much. Mm -hmm. Good for him. Yeah. Um, so well, has that been part of your motivation, though, as to why you have studied, you know, Paralympics and adaptive sports and such? I think it was it was a combination. Um, and it's uh, in some ways it made the project really rewarding. Um, and it also made it you know challenging, too, because you know, the, the academic instinct is to critique, 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 right? Um, and I definitely think there's, there's plenty that needs to be critiqued uh, about the Paralympic movement in general and kind of things uh, and representations and things like that. Um, but it's also, um, 
I mean, seeing the important role that sports have played uh, for my son and the, the people on his team um, and just, I think it gives you a really different perspective um, and kind of hopefully kind of gave me a more well-rounded perspective uh, in, in the whole. Um, but it was um, something that, you know, it kind of intersected at, at the same time I was looking for a new project uh, to start working on, you know, that was around the same time he was, he was taking, starting to take an interest in sports. And, and it was going to be clear that, you know, that we weren't going to be able to just go to the, the little league team locally, um, that we were going to need to look for something um, more adapted. Uh, and so the, fortunately we, we live here in Kalamazoo, which, uh, and there's a great Mary Freebed uh, has a, a terrific um, yeah. wheelchair adapted sports program. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've been pretty involved with them. You know, he goes you, most summers is at a camp, uh, you know, a week long camp where they do all sorts of sports and activities. And uh, so that's um, so it's been kind of a it, it has been kind of personal. And that's kind of been a factor that's kept me interested. And it also, you know, when we were in Tokyo, that meant that, you know, he was getting to meet Paralympians and he was getting to because, um, you know, I would meet people and interview them and we'd go to their events. And, um, you know, and that's just something that was pretty, pretty unique for him. Um, and us, all of us combined. Um, but I think in particular for him, uh, it was pretty, pretty neat experience that is not always the case. Um, you know, it's actually interesting. Um, you know, uh, I'm blanking his name, Daniel Romanchuk, I think, um, is like one of the world's best wheelchair racers right now. Um, and it's interesting because when my, when my son's first tournament in uh, sled hockey, the in national tournament, they actually played, his team played against his team in the finals uh, and lost. Um, so he's actually met him, but I don't think like necessarily like before he was kind of this, a big wheelchair, uh, marathoner. Yeah. So, so that it's, you know, it is in some ways, it's also a really small community, um, yeah. uh, that, that when, especially the farther up you get into the kind of, uh, the rankings here, uh, you kind of know everybody, um, or kind of have met a lot of different people. Uh, and that's one of the, the great things about kind of what I've in doing the research in Japan, meeting so many people, um, it was very, I would, I would meet people and then they would introduce me to somebody else who would introduce, introduce me to someone else. And then, you know, I'd get um, access to some new things that I never would have found otherwise. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, so that's the, the community around adapted and, and, and disability sports is such a, you know, a strong community in some ways. Uh, yes. And they are really connected. Yeah. Um, that people are, people are really supportive um, of the project and, and, and in general. Yeah. Um, so college, uh, what year in school is your son? Uh, he's just, just starting into high school. So, so okay. yeah, he'll be, yeah, he's got a little while yet. <laughs> yeah. But you know, so you mentioned a few of the colleges, uh, that have adaptive, uh, collegiate adaptive level sport programs. It's, it's a few, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's a handful. Yeah. Um, and, um, so your son, you know, has a choice obviously, but it's only a few. Do you have any thoughts on how we get more uh, collegiate level adaptive sports in, hmm. you know, in the U.S.? That's a good question. Um, and I think a lot of it probably is going to end up, uh, I mean, just based on kind of uh, how, like I've, some of the things I have looked at in other places, it often develops through kind of consortiums um, or kind of partnerships with organizations that, that have the tools and the resources to do that. So like a place like Mary Freebed, um, you know, working with a local, you know, university to kind of provide support because, um, I think a lot of places, um, they, they are in, not in a position to, 
provide the resources and the training and the staff to, to do a full-fledged adapted sports program. Uh, so you need to have kind of other opportunities for students to take advantage of this. And that's, you know, looking at, at, at what U of M sounds like, and they're a fairly new program from what I understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it looks like they are, uh, you know, um, working not just with students on their campus, but kind of opening it up to the broader community in order to get kind of more people involved and to provide access, um, which is, I think, a key, always a key question, right? How do you get, how do you get people, get people to kind of form teams um, is one part, but it's also opening it up so that more people have access so that it's not just limited to, you know, just students who are at U of M, um, but you're saying Eastern students and, you know, students at some of the local community colleges who, who might be interested in doing adaptive sports are going to be able to join their programs. Um, and that's a, I think that's a, a very different model from the way that college sports has traditionally operated in the U.S. Um, and, and so that in and of itself, uh, I think, is part of the barrier, perhaps, uh, that, you know, you have to think about um, those programs have to be more open um, and kind of to students who aren't enrolled. And so that, you know, and again, I'm not an expert in this by any stretch, but I imagine that complicates things for the hosting program. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that I think is is, so it's going to be programs like that that are probably opening up and more accessible, but there is complicating factors that I'm sure are part of the part of the challenges of doing them. Yeah. Um, does your son um, feel as if, you know, he can do anything um, that, okay, he might have spinal bifida, but I'm going to still go, I'm going to play whatever sports I want to play. You know, I'm going to do what I want to in life. Have you and your your wife, your family been able to kind of inculcate that those kind of, you know, desires in him? I think so. Um, you know, it's always um, I think it's also tempered by reality um, and that, you know, we've we've been it very clear that if he wants to do something, we'll try and find a way to make it happen. Um, and and so and I think generally we've we've met with support from that uh, in in a lot of other places. Um, but but it's also, you know, the. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's also like he's he's also aware of the barriers that are there in society, um, partly because we talk about them because I study them and we we think about kind of the fact that, you know, if if there are no stairs um, or there are no elevators, um, then you can't go up that staircase um, with the wheelchair. Uh, you know, and have there are places in the U.S. where that's still very much a reality, um, and there even at the school in Tokyo where he was based, um, he went to the local school, um, and it was a school that. He, he had to climb stairs to get to his classroom. Um, and he said he was willing to do that. Um, and, and so we did, but that was, you know, it would have meant going to a completely different school outside of our neighborhood. Uh, and so different kind of set of obstacles and barriers there. But, uh, but that was something that, you know, and in the US too, I don't wanna say that Japan is the only place that has schools without, without elevators, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, or places without elevators, you know, having traveled in New York City, not that long ago, it was a while ago now, um, just shocked by how hard it was to get around. Mm -hmm. um, and even uh, I was in Toronto for the pair of Pan Am games with my, my sons. Um, and, you know, we were, it was kind of at various points, it was like, okay, I guess we took the wrong exit. Um, so now we'll either have to go back and backtrack or we're going to have to just, you climb the stairs, I'll carry the chair up until we get to the top. Um, so, you know, I think and in terms of like sports and things like that, I think there's, you know, similar barriers that, um, there's going to be, he's probably not going to play on the high school basketball team um, at, at his high school, right? Um, because, you know, he might be able to be involved in some way, but, but that's not going to be, because that's not going to work. Uh, that's not an up-down basketball team, right? Um, so thinking about those kinds of things, like tempered by reality, but kind of the sense of like, if you want to do something, we'll find a way to, to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. 
Do you have other children too? Yeah, I have another son. Mm -hmm. And uh, what year is he in school? Uh, he'll be, he's a junior, so he'll be headed to college even sooner, so. Okay, and so have they, you know, one of the things that I've talked to a number of the people that I've interviewed about is the importance of having siblings participate in, mm -hmm. you know, adaptive sports. Um, and, you know, to me, it's a, it's a bigger issue. It's how do we create a more inclusive society? Mm -hmm. So ha has that happened in your family? Has your other son? Yeah, we, um, some up down tennis stuff. Um, and then um, also, you know, it, it depends like on the um, sled hockey team, the team itself is, is um, he's not really on that team, but there's been a few events where he's gone and kind of tried the sled and um, he doesn't particularly like ice skating. So he's not a hockey player himself. So he doesn't necessarily want to go skate with him and play hockey with yeah. him. I, if he were, I think it'd be a different scenario. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, you know, but yeah, that, that idea. And they, they talk about, um, well, I mean, they're both going to be on this tennis team next year. So um, the high school tennis team together. So, um, and so like talking about training this summer and things like that. Uh, and I think that, you know, that is something that, that ways to kind of incorporate those kind of your up down experiences, or like you said, inclusive and um, approaches to sports are something that I, I, you know, especially kind of thinking again about my own research, that that's something I know that they're discussing in Japan a lot more and thinking about kind of ways to, to do that. And I know that that's also true uh, in the US in a lot of places. Um, and so I've been to a couple up down tennis tournaments um, yeah. uh, and, you know, seen those. Uh, and then, um, yeah, and those are, you know, I think great experiences. I'm, I'm not a tennis player myself. So I, I again, I, if I played, it would be bad, bad for the person I was playing with, really. Um, I would be the, I would be the, the, the negative uh, partner there in that case, for sure. So, so you're, you're both your son's high school tennis team then. So how are they doing competition? with your son who uses a wheelchair? We've not had that yet. We've not had that okay. yet. So that'll be next year. Yeah, we'll oh. find out next year how it's gonna work. Um, and we know that in our area, there's been a couple of students who played on uh, like JV teams in our area. We have a number of really strong tennis teams. Like some of the top teams in the state are right in our area. Um, so uh, so even really good tennis players often end up on, at the JV level uh, in our region or at the kind of, you know, their number four doubles kind of thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I think it, you know, it will see what it looks like this, this coming year. Um, oh. But so far, again, like we've met with most people seem to be supportive of trying to figure out how to make it work. Um, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that that's not always the case um, in a lot of places. And, you know, so I feel like we're pretty fortunate uh, to have benefited from the local support. So yeah, that's terrific. at least at this point. Mm -hmm. That's terrific. Um, broad question, Dennis. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how do we create a more inclusive society? Um, you know, what do we, what more do we have to do? Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think a big part of it is, is information um, and getting information out um, to people. And I don't think that's, knowledge is not always the solution to everything because, you know, but, but right now, um, one of the things I feel that is most a barrier to, uh, is that people just don't know about, mm -hmm. about the options that are out there for people that do have disabilities, um, that the, the things that sometimes that people are doing with disabilities. Um, so then when they do encounter someone who has a disability, who's doing something, it becomes this kind of, wow, that's so inspirational when in fact, they're just living their lives and doing what, you know, other people are doing. Um, and so, you know, I think there is a barrier there in terms of knowledge uh, and access to information. Um, so I think that's one thing. Um, you know, there's also all sorts of policy stuff that could be implemented all over the place. Um, 
you know, at, at different levels. Uh, and I'm going to, you know, perhaps kind of reveal my politics here, but, you know, access to better access to healthcare is a huge thing. You shouldn't have to kind of like fight with an insurance company to get access to good rehabilitation practices that are going to help you after you've had some sort of injury, or even if you have a kind of just, uh, it's part of your life, right? I mean, people need rehabilitation uh, in, in various forms um, at different points. And so that shouldn't be a barrier, uh, but it is. Um, and so, you know, think, I think that that's a, another thing. Um, and then I would also say, and again, some of this is, um, you know, coming out of, out of my research in particular, but um, just opportunities um, have to be there and you have to have people that are willing to kind of say, okay, um, we're going to create these opportunities. Uh, and that, that's not a policy thing per se. Like you can mandate, uh, you know, that you have X number of people uh, and Japan essentially does, right? They have uh, hiring quotas and things like that. Um, there's, there's flaws with that approach. Um, because you know, there was a big scandal earlier uh, a couple of years ago now uh, in Japan about kind of people inflating their figures uh, to kind of so they didn't have to kind of they could fit the quotas. Um, but I, but so so you can mandate stuff like that. But I think it also has to be, you know, people have to be willing to kind of take an opportunity or to create those opportunities. And particular, I'm thinking of business and work and things like that, right? Uh, in particular, um, you know, creating spaces and, and then having facilities that are accessible enough for people to be able to do the work. Um, so those are all you know, policy. Those are some of that's, you know, government stuff, some of it's uh, at the institution level. Uh, and then at an individual level, that, that's where it gets harder, I think. Um, you can give people all this information, you can give them all this stuff, but eventually you have to kind of consume it and you have to kind of have that kind of different approach and different mindset. Um, yeah. And that's one, you know, again, one of the things I wanted to look at was the impact of all these events. And I have to say at the end that, you know, you can say that they've had an impact on people's perceptions, but we don't know that um, because it's really hard to measure uh, those types of things. So like uh, the Paralympics, has it impacted people's perceptions of people with disabilities? Well, probably, almost certainly. Yeah. Um, it's really difficult to say how. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I think at the individual level, that's where it becomes really, really difficult to kind of know how to make those changes sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're getting towards the end of our interview. Can mm -hmm. Hold up your book again so we can all sure, see it yeah. there. It'd be yep. great. Get the correct title. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no problem. Yeah. I that. forgot yeah. it was not updated. Ooh, that's something yeah. I want to read. Um, and so can you leave us with a, a story from your book um, with that will give, a, give us a good message, you know? <laughs> oh, let's see. There's there's a number of them. Um, yeah. I'll try and think of one that is kind of... Okay. Um, Telling. Um, I, I, I think I'm trying to just think of a specific one here. Yeah. Uh, so there is, you know, I guess maybe I'll give you two quick ones, I guess. Sure. Um, yes. Maybe then, maybe more than one. Uh, yeah. So the first one is, uh, you know, I interviewed a, 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 one of the Paralympians from 1964. Um, and so Suzaki Katsumi, uh, and he, uh, he told me this story. He was talking about his experience and that he, he oh, I talked a lot about what he called his failures um, at the Paralympics because he had literally had no training beforehand. He was kind of plucked out of the hospital, you know, a few, maybe even a month less than that before the games uh, and ended up participating in these Olympics or these Paralympics in 1964 in Tokyo. Um, and so he was telling me the story of how uh, he had not really, he was, one of his events was swimming. And he had trained mostly, essentially doing rehabilitation work uh, at the at the hospital in a, a hot springs, because um, he's in Beppu, which is very famous for its hot springs. Uh, and so was doing, and so then he gets to the Paralympics uh, and gets into the pool and is shocked by how cold it was. Um, you know, so that's kind of an example of kind of where the Paralympics started uh, in 1964. Um, 
you know, a very different, different scenario than like today where you have kind of Paralympians that are kind of, you know, world-class athletes that train year round, essentially professionals, um, which is where the original title came from, right. From patients to pros. Um, and then, uh, the other thing I'll just mention is, uh, you know, the, and again, partly because they're kind of their bookends in some ways, nice bookends. Um, when the Paralympics were being bid for in 2013, uh, the, the main uh, spokesperson, the first person who spoke at the, the, the final Olympic bid kind of presentation ceremony uh, was a Paralympian, uh, Sato Mami, uh, also Tani Mami, also known as, um, uh, but, uh, and gave a speech um, that, you know, set the tone and uh, for, for how the, the, the bid was all kind of framed around recovery from the, the 2011 earthquake um, and, and tsunami and then the, the nuclear meltdown. Uh, and so those recovery ideas, but she, her, her talk about kind of the, the importance of sports kind of, and how it had it shaped her life, how her experiences um, with the, she was from the region that was hit by the tsunami. Um, you know, so th- how sports kind of was such an important part of that. Uh, and so th- just the fact that you had a Paralympian speaking before the prime minister, before the, the Japanese Olympic committee chair, um, you know, so this is, uh, you know, a remarkable kind of development uh, in terms of the, the Paralympic movement in Japan. So you go from, you know, taking patients right out of the hospital in some ways um, and having them participate uh, to a situation where you've got professional athletes that are kind of international spokespeople. Um, and that's, you know, a huge transition in, in less than 60 years, really, um, is what we're talking about. And um, that's pretty remarkable um, in the, the, the span of, of what we're talking about. So, yeah. yeah. So two stories that kind of bookend uh, this, this stuff nicely. Well, Dennis, thank you so much. Terrific. Yeah. Thank yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciated it.